Good morning. Uh, great to be back with you today. Carrie and I were in Orlando, Florida last weekend. She was speaking at a women's conference there, and I at a church of a friend there in Orlando. And we were reminded once more how much we're grateful for you and being here with you all. So I didn't mean that by any means. I was just, yeah, no, I just, well, that's maybe true too. But anyway, uh, really just, we love you. That's the point of this. So here we are, message time. Here we go. We are at the front end of a series looking at the idea and the subject and the importance of wisdom, as you can see by the screen in the video, and we are moving through the book of Proverbs to help us do that, and our scripture reading this morning is going to be on the screen to your left and your right. There are going to be some selected readings here from Proverbs chapter 14. The wise woman builds her house, but with her own hands the foolish one tears hers down. Whoever fears the Lord walks uprightly, but those who despise him are devious in their ways. A fool's mouth lashes out with pride, but the lips of the wise protect them. An honest witness does not deceive, but a false witness pours out lies. The mocker seeks wisdom and finds none, but knowledge comes easily to the discerning. Stay away from a fool, for you will not find knowledge on their lips." The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but goodwill is found among the upright. There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. The simple believe anything, but the prudent give thought to their steps. The wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but a fool is hot-headed and yet feels secure. A quick-tempered person does foolish things, and the one who devises evil schemes is hated. The simple inherit folly, but the prudent are crowned with knowledge. The wealth of the wise is their crown, but the folly of fools yields folly. Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Wisdom reposes in the heart of a discerning, and even among fools she lets herself be known. A king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant arouses his fury. It's God's word this morning. Uh, In the Old Testament, when God appeared to Solomon after his father David's death, he appeared to Solomon and he said, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. You just name it. You can have glory, fame, stability, riches, power, whatever you want. Just name it and it's yours. And incredibly, in that moment, when, when God came to Solomon, Solomon, you may know the story, he asked for something fairly counterintuitive there. He didn't ask for fame or riches or glory, but no, he, 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 this is what he asked for here. We see in 1 Kings chapter 3, this is what he actually prayed in response to God. He said, God, give your servant a discerning heart to what? To distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? So Solomon, we see here, he asked for one thing. He asked for the ability to distinguish, to discern between right and wrong. And God said, oh, yes, Solomon, you've asked for wisdom. That's what you're describing. You're talking about wisdom, and I'll give it to you. And and so in Solomon's request, we see this fantastic key 
to understanding what wisdom is in the first place. Wisdom is not just obeying rules or commandments, although wisdom certainly isn't less than that. No, wisdom, as we can see, is understanding what's, what's happening in the space between right and wrong. It's, it's knowing what to do in the vast majority of your life, in the situations in your life where the rules may not or don't apply. So that's what wisdom is, and we've been looking at a number of themes over these first few weeks, like the path of wisdom. Last week we looked at the walls of wisdom and Dave's excellent message, and this week we look at one of the biggest themes in all of Proverbs. It's the, the idea, or the theme, maybe you picked it up as we read it there, the idea of folly, folly and foolishness, which is what chapter 14 is all about. The words folly or foolishness or fools appear at least 16 times in one chapter alone. So if we want to get a good grasp on what Proverbs says about the ability right, to distinguish between right and wrong, we'd better get a good grasp on what the opposite or the antonym of wisdom is. It's something the Proverbs calls folly. So what does the Bible tell us we should do with folly? Well, three things as we're going to see. One, it says we should understand foolishness. Two, we should avoid foolishness. And finally, We should choose foolishness. Circle back to that at the end. First, let's see what the Bible says about understanding foolishness and folly. Verse 1 of the chapter, uh, it kicks it off. It immediately sets up wisdom and foolishness as opposites. And you can see this again, verse 1. It says, the wise woman, wise person, builds her house, her house. But with her own hands, the what? Foolish one tears hers down. So wisdom, folly are opposites. What is folly? Well, if wisdom, we said a few weeks ago, if wisdom is understanding reality, if wisdom is understanding how things really work, if wisdom is understanding how life really works, then folly is just the opposite. Folly is being out of touch with reality. Folly is not understanding how life really works. A couple of years ago, uh, two precious sons of mine decided they wanted to conduct an experiment. It was the kind of experiment that was more of a contest, as you'll see. And this contest slash experiment involved, as will come uh, to be of no surprise to fathers in here, especially of multiple boys, this contest slash experiment involved a hot stove. Now, you think you may not think you know where I'm going with this, but you don't. So I found out later through multiple interrogations because eh, the guilty parties were reluctant to speak and fess up that, that two of my boys had, in fact, challenged each other to a contest to see who could hold their own face to a hot stove the longest. True story. Yeah. Now, let's just say the second boy didn't even take his turn (laughs) because after the first one came away howling with a credit card sized burn on his forehead, the second boy decided that the winner in this case would really be the loser, right? So yeah, it's a wise choice, right? So now what was happening in that moment? Was it, was it morally wrong for my son to voluntarily press his face onto a hot stove. No, it wasn't wrong, but it was what? It's foolish, right? It's foolish, yeah. It's folly, why? Because he was out of touch with reality, right? He's out of touch with the way a hot stove really worked. And 
he couldn't foresee or he chose not to think about what would happen. He just acted in a way that brought pain into his life. So foolishness is being out of touch with reality. Foolishness is being out of touch with the way things really are, with how life really works, which begs the question then, well, what is reality, right? According to the Bible, how does life really work? Well, what the Bible gives you, gives us, are two twin truths, okay? Two twin truths as the underpinnings of reality. And the first one, the first and most basic wise thing to realize is, number one, that the world is created which is to say that there is a God who made the world and therefore there is a way things ought to be. It's called the doctrine of creation. And in chapter 8, which we looked at a few weeks ago, chapter 8 of Proverbs showed us that, that God made the world by wisdom, in wisdom, through wisdom. And therefore, what is wise to understand is that there is an order to the universe. There is a way things work, and to ignore the way things really work is foolish. For example, let's say that you wanted to be an elite professional athlete, and you wanted to win that really important football game that's going to change everybody's life today, right, later today. But you, but you decided you wanted to be an elite professional athlete and win the game, and so, but you decided that you could do that through throwing down a couple of donuts every day, you know, uh, you know have a few cigarettes, a soda for breakfast every day, and insist that you could win. Now, what is that? Well, that's foolish to believe, right, because there is a physical order to your body that must be honored and to ignore that or be out of touch with that is going to bring what? It's going to bring breakdown, right? Breakdown of that order. But the Bible doesn't just say there's a physicality to your life that must be honored. No, it says there is an order to morality that must be honored as well. In other words, you can't just make up any old way that you want to live. Wisdom is acknowledging, therefore, that there is real right and real wrong. There is a real moral order of the world. And to say there's no such thing as truth, no such thing as right and wrong is foolish. And by the way, you, you, you know, we ought to love the doctrine of creation. Here's why. Because the doctrine of creation actually lays the foundation and the, and the demand for true justice, a right demand for true justice. Because if there's no such thing as right and wrong. No such thing as real truth. There's not a way things ought to be than calls for justice or for peace or against violence. They're just nice opinions like chocolate or vanilla. But, 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 but if you're a Christian today, you've got a better reason, a deeper reason, a higher reason for crying out for justice and for truth because you know that you, if you do that, you're working for what's best for the world straight from the heart of God. God created, God created the world to be a just place. And when you work for that, from the reality, the truth, the knowledge that God made the world to be just, you won't give up. You won't give up. You're doing not just a nice idea, but God's work in the world. But the second piece of reality, the second of the twin truths the Bible insists that you got to have to, to understand what folly is, is not only to believe, first, that the world is created, but second, that the world is fallen. The world's fallen. That even though the world was made to work a certain way, 
it doesn't always. The doctrine of the fall says that because man has broken God's world through his own choice, that our physicality, right, no matter how deeply we honor that, will at some point break down. See, in other words, no one plays for forever, right? That even, the doctrine of the fall says, even the best laid plans, even the best prayed prayers don't always come to pass or work out or work the way we want them to, which is why verse 9 puts it like this. It says, there's a way, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. See, the path looked right. It seemed right, but it didn't work out right. Why? Because the world's fallen. It's shot through with brokenness. But in the same way that the doctrine of creation paves the way for true justice in the world, the doctrine of the fall paves the way for true empathy, empathy in our lives toward others. Why? You ask why? Well, why is that person having a hard time, right? I mean, why is she struggling? He, why is he struggling? Well, it's not always because someone's violated the moral order. Sometimes it's just complex, Sometimes they're just having a rough go of it. And we shouldn't condemn, right? We should empathize. Empathize with them. And these two pillars, right, creation and the fall, can you see, they allow us to live lives of justice and empathy. It allows us, on one hand, to insist on right and wrong. There's a real and true moral order to the world. But it also allows us to be gracious and patient towards those who are struggling and fallen and broken. In other words, if you're only a moralist, right, if you only look at creation and the way things ought to be, you could end up being self-righteous and look like a fool. But if you're a relativist, on the other hand, if you you sort of only look at the fall at people's brokenness, if you only empathize and you never insist on truth and righteousness and moral boundaries, you'll, you'll head for moral and spiritual disaster and you'll look like a fool, right? But it's only when you and I, when we pair these things together, creation and the fall, justice and empathy, can you and I live wise lives? Or as the poet William Blake put it, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. And when this we rightly know, safely through the world we go. Yeah, it's well put, isn't it? What's he saying? He's saying we'll walk safely when we walk wisely, which is to know that the fundamental human condition consists of both joy and woe. There's joy because of the creation, but there's woe because of the fall. And if you can grasp both of these, church, we won't be shaken. So that's number one. That's what foolishness is. It's being out of touch with reality. But what I want you to see next, and I wish uh, there were some better news for you today. What I want you to see is this. What chapter 14 is telling you is actually worse than you think. Because chapter 14 tells us here, and really the Proverbs throughout, that there, unfortunately, are almost an infinite amount of ways we can be fools. And it highlights three in particular here, three kinds of foolishness to avoid. And that's now number two. It's the Bible tells us we should avoid foolishness. We should avoid being a fool. Three types of fools here to avoid being. So let's, let's look at them in turn. And the first type of fool that you see here repeatedly mentioned is, you may have picked up on it, is the simple fool, right? The simple fool, And you see this in verse 12, among other places. It says this. It says, the simple believe what? 
anything, right? But the prudent give thought to their steps. And this is a bit tricky to get here because the word doesn't mean simple alone. It really means more along the lines of gullible in the Hebrew. It means a person, hear this, who is gullible because of a crack in their character. The simple fool is able to be taken advantage of because he or she believes anything anybody will tell them out of a perceived self-advantage, a way to get ahead or help themselves. And uh, recently, the, the camera company Nikon, you guys have heard of Nikon, I'm sure. Nikon, they crowned the winner of a massive online photo competition. And this was the winning picture. It's a great picture. Look at that. Yeah, stairs, got an airplane. Yeah, it's a cool picture. The only problem was, or is, the picture's a fake. It's a fake. The plane was photoshopped in, and the internet, of course, figured it out pretty promptly. And this is what you do. If you just reduce the grayscale on it, you can see that the plane was obviously photoshopped in. And of course, when people found out that a, that a prestigious camera company like Nikon had fallen just for a basic con job, they had a field day with it. And here are a few photos some folks posted in the comments section. Here's one. <laughs> And here's another one. <laughs> That's pretty funny. So how, how did Nikon look here? They look foolish, right? Foolish. Why? Because the simple believe anything right now that's pretty harmless because it just involved a minor loss of reputation but what the Bible insists that in the end the way of the simple isn't just harmless but it's deadly. Chapter 9 personifies folly. It puts words in the mouth of folly and says, this is what folly says. It says stuff like this. Folly says, let all who are simple come to my house, right? Let the simple ones hang out with me, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Back in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 17, you can look it up. There's an incredible story from the life of David that we didn't get a chance to see in our previous series. And in the story, we see that David is on the run from his own son Absalom, but was overthrown. Uh, uh, David was overthrown by Absalom, and Absalom had taken command of the throne. And David, here in this story, he's extremely vulnerable. He's on the run, on the verge of defeat, and he's on the verge of defeat because his former trusted advisor, counselor, and wise man, a man by the name of Ahithophel, had defected and was now counseling and advising Absalom. And David knows because he's been the beneficiary of Ahithophel's wisdom that he'll lose his life unless the game is changed. And so David takes his new uh, counselor, his new wise man, a man by the name of Hushai, and he sends Hushai in to Absalom's courtroom as a double agent, as a spy. And he says, in order to preserve David's life, he says, Ahithophel, you, excuse me, Hushai, you got to do everything you can to thwart not Absalom's military plans, but Ahithophel's wisdom. And so one day Ahithophel comes to the king, to Absalom, and he says, Absalom, you should attack David now. While David's on the run, he's weak, vulnerable. Don't give him time and space to marshal his forces and his resources. If you strike now, Absalom, you'll win and secure the throne. But Hushai, oh, he's Johnny on the spot right there. And he says, whoa, hang on a second. Wait a minute, Absalom. I really think you should wait. Don't strike now. You should think about it for a while. Maybe now's not the best time. Do you know who Absalom believed? Well, he believed Hushai. Why? Well, 
Because Hushai appealed to Absalom's fear and to his pride. He was gullible. He said, uh, Absalom, your father David is a brave man. He's like a bear when he's cornered. Yeah, that's what he says. Unless you take time to get a lot of troops to go face him, you could lose. And then what would the people think about you? Right? Your poll numbers might drop, Absalom. They might think your father is braver and better than you and want him back. And so Absalom took his advice. And when Absalom took Hushai's advice, Ahithophel, it says, he saddled his donkey. He went back to his own hometown And he hung himself. And he hung himself. Why? Oh, because he knew that the end, where the simple end up, where the gullible end up, of those who are willing to be deceived through appeals to their fear and their pride and their vanity, he knew where they'd end up. Ahithophel knew what Proverbs 9 told us, that the simple are soon guests in the realm of the dead. And so it was. Absalom died soon thereafter. I told you it was worse. Okay. It's the first kind of fool. Second kind of fool that Proverbs 14 shows us is the skeptical fool. Skeptical fool, which is often translated as the mocker. The mocker, a familiar character here. And verse 5 gives you the perfect picture of what this kind of fool is. It says the mocker seeks wisdom but finds what? None, yeah. See, unlike, unlike on one hand, the simple fool who will believe anything right? The mocker believes in nothing. Mocker believes in nothing. What's the problem? Well, at the heart of skepticism, this is the word in the Hebrew, skepticism, at the heart of skepticism, which is not honest doubt, by the way, we're not talking about honest doubt, but pure skepticism, see, at the heart of mocking is a heart that believes there's nothing to believe in at all. This past week at UT, you heard it referenced a moment ago, we had our big three-night event out on campus about love, sex, and relationships. And after the first night on Tuesday night, there were some folks, some guests who, who visited, and they went home, and they posted anonymously their negative perception of how the event went and how they thought, uh, in particular, it was extremely non-secular. I get that for a moment. It was put on by a faith-based group. So I'm not sure what they thought they were walking into, but uh, they, they post how they thought that it encouraged spousal abuse and marital rape, which, of course, the event did not, absolutely did not. I don't kind of know how they got that out of that. Uh, as Christians, we are firmly against both. Uh, but they solicited the help of a skeptics group on campus, and been, this particular group is known for protesting Christian events at UT. So we knew going into the second night there was likely going to be quite a bit of tension, and there was, which I might add, is always good for the proclamation of the gospel. So this skeptics group, they showed up with full force, banners, signs, chants uh, to protest the event. And I got there about a half an hour before the event with our speaker. And, and the president of the group, the skeptics group, a guy we'll call Jim. Jim was there moving through the crowd wearing his Satan t-shirt, uh, handing out condoms out of a colander. Colander. Uh, and giving out pro-atheism stickers and shouting things like, uh, science is the way. Science is the way, you know, I think you're like the guy from Nacho Libre, right? I just believe in science, but, and he's saying things like science is great, sex is great. He's really starting to rattle. He's really loud. There's more than, you know, hundred students or so in the hallway there. And so he, as he passed by me, I just asked loudly in my friendliest, you know, you know, pastor voice. I said, Hey, I said, man, what are you talking about? 
He said, science and sex. And so I said, even louder, I said, man, I love science and I love sex. <laughs> and all these students, they turn and look down at me. I said, what? I got four kids, you know. <laughs> And he, he started laughing, the students started laughing, it kind of diffuses the situation, and then and I started asking him some questions, both as a way to get to know him, and of course to keep him from talking to anybody else. So <laughs> I said, I said, what's your name? I said, you know, where are you from? Stuff like that. And of course, more, you know, most importantly, why the colander? Why the colander? And he said, well, the founder of our group, uh, the skeptics group, was really mad that uh, somebody who's Jewish can wear their prayer cap and their driver's license photo. So he said, my friend protested and got the right to wear a colander on his head in a driver's license photo. I said, wow. I said, wow. I said, okay, all right. I said, well, why are you here? Why are you here, man? Why are you here? He says, well, the information that this guy's going to present tonight abuses women and, and encourages uh, and supports abuse. And I asked him because I knew the answer. I said, well, well were you here last night? Were you here last night? He said, uh, no. I said, so you, you don't actually know what was shared. He said, no. I said, well, well how did you hear that? It? Well, it's through the secondhand, uh, secondhand voice. I said, well, I said, do you know the source? He said, no. I said, so you're hearing secondhand information from a source you don't even know. He said, yeah, CNR point. But then my friend Chad and I, we started asking him some questions about his belief system. And, and we asked him, he said, is there anything that anyone could ever say to convince you that there's a God? And he said, no, there is absolutely nothing anyone could ever say or show me that could ever convince me there's a God. Listen, as much as I respect and honor his right to be there, and as much as I respect his courage, and he's far bolder than I've been in many situations speaking up in a group of people that aren't like him, listen, I thought, man, this is a picture in some ways, many ways, of a mocker, right? He's here making fun of people he doesn't know, but he looks foolish, right? He's protesting an event. He's got no idea what it's about. He's holding a colander, and he's trying to scare away people from listening to a Canadian counselor, right? Why? Well, because he believes, he believes there's nothing to believe in at all, right? As G.K. Chesterton put it about the modern skeptic, he says, but the new rebel, the new rebel's a skeptic and will not entirely trust anything. He's got no loyalty, therefore he can never really be a revolutionist. Thought we had a slide for that. Well, maybe we'll get it next service. That's all right. And the fact, hear this, and the fact that he doubts everything, real, there we go, really gets in the way when he wants to denounce anything. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, among other things, that because a mocker is out of touch with reality, he ends up being betrayed by his own heart. And he's right. So the simple fool on one hand will believe anything. The skeptical fool will believe in nothing. But, but, but there's one more type of fool here. And we have to see. Third, it's what's called and we'll call the fast angered fool. The fast angered fool. You see the verse here. I think it's 24. It says, whoever is patient, 29, has great understanding. But one who is what? Quick tempered displays folly. See, over and over in the Proverbs, there's a kind of a fool who's referred to as quick-tempered, or as the Hebrew literally says, fast-angered. Fast-angered. They use fast anger to get what they want. Why? Because they're impatient. Impatient. And they gotta have what they want right now, and therefore, the way they act through their impatience causes 
people around them to suffer. There's a story that I've seen that's been making the rounds on the internet recently that's really an old story, and it perfectly illustrates the danger of the folly of the fast-angered person. And it's a story from C.S. Lewis's book called Prince Caspian. And it's about a quick-tempered dwarf named Nicobrick. And maybe you've read it. But in the book, Nicobrick's people, they're dwarves, and they've suffered terribly in their land at the hands of an evil king named King Miraz. And you know, they've called for help. But really, when, when no help has come, when Aslan, the, the great caretaker of Narnia and the Christ figure, when Aslan hasn't shown up and he hasn't appeared, Nicobrick he gets impatient and he calls for a desperate kind of help. And this is what he says. He says to his friend, he says, the stories tell of other powers besides the ancient kings and queens. How if we could call them up? What do you mean, said Caspian at last. I mean a power so much greater than Aslan's that it held Narnia spellbound for years and years. If the stories are true. The white witch, cried three voices all at once. Well, the white witch, if you know the story, was an evil power that had enslaved the world uh, at one point. But Nicobrick, here, he doesn't care who comes to help him as long as he gets what he wants. And when his friend points out to him the truth that the white witch was terrible, this is what he says. He says, I'll believe in anyone or anything that'll batter those cursed Telmarine barbarians to pieces or drive them out of Narnia. Anyone or anything, Aslan or the white witch, do you understand? And then when he's reminded that the witch was worse, way worse than King Moraz, what does he say? He says this. He says, not to dwarves. She wasn't. Oh, in other words, he's saying, I and people like me, I and us, we are my first priority. And getting what I want right now is all I care about. I got to do me, as the saying goes, right? And every time someone tries to reason with him, his temper flares, he gets angry. Then he calls upon the white witch to help him, to come back from the dead to help. The others are forced to stop him. A battle ensues. And when it's all said and done, Nicobrick lies dead. Why? Oh, his impatience, right? He got tired of waiting and it drove him to despair and death, his impatience, drove him to folly. How about you? How about me? How about you? Is there something that you're tired of waiting for from God? Maybe, maybe you've been saying, man, God, I've been waiting, right? I've been waiting for so long for a change to happen, so long for this to happen in my life, to get married or get a promotion or this thing. So it hasn't happened. I've got to take matters into my own hands. If that's you, if you're feeling like that today, let me just appeal to you. Don't do it, friend. It's folly. It's folly. Now you're saying, man, Morgan, can we please be done with these, right? I mean, is there a way out? And there is. There is. But what I want you to see this morning is that folly, this is what this is saying, folly is a universal problem. It's a condition that afflicts every person. At one time or another, we're all gullible, right? Where we ought not to be, or we're all skeptical of things we ought not to be skeptical of. At some point, we're all impatient, aren't we? And we bring suffering into our lives, the lives of others. Why? Here's why. Because no one can see all of themselves clearly. No one can see all themselves clearly. No one is fully in touch with the depths of the twin truths of creation and the fall. And therefore, we are all prone to folly and foolishness and ruining our own lives. But, 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 but there is a way out. Say, what is it? Well, it's not to understand foolishness. 
Nor is it just to avoid foolishness. But incredibly, this is what the Bible says. It says, number three, we must, in the end, choose foolishness. Choose it. What does this mean? Centuries later, hundreds of years after the book of Proverbs was written, another wise man by the name of Paul, Paul, in the New Testament, he looked at all the wisdom of the Greeks, all the wisdom of the Romans, all the wisdom of history. He was a lawyer and a student. He looked at all the wisdom the world had ever produced, and he had the gall to summarize it all in one phrase like this. He asked in a letter, to the people of the city of Corinth, the ancient Greek city, he asked, where is the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish, here's what he called it all, the wisdom of the world. Oh, Paul, he's, he's being intentionally offensive right here. I hope maybe that you felt it. He's being in your face here. He's saying that all forms of wisdom that every culture have ever produced, that they have to offer apart from God, are the same thing as foolishness. Foolishness. It's incredible. And he goes on to say, this is why he says it. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And how can he say this? Oh, here's how. It's because the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world is every person's attempt at one point or another, every culture's attempt at one point or another to save themselves without God, to build a life or a culture on something apart from God, which is the ultimate folly. It's the ultimate foolish thing to do. See, the wisdom of the world is the message that you can save yourself just as you are by your own strength, which in our day, though, is just the message that people don't need saving that they're fine just how they are, right? I mean, but it's incredible that we say this. Think about it. On a culture, we say this. On one hand, we say things are bad, right? Things need to change. There's injustice and evil people. They're evil people, but I don't need to change, right? I'm fine as I am. I ought to practice self-love. I ought to love me exactly how I am. But listen, but if you don't need to change... Why should anyone else, right? Aren't they fine exactly how they are too? Oh. And if no one needs to change, how can we say the world's messed up? See, oh, but Paul's saying here, there's a kind of foolishness that can break through all of that. It's the foolishness of God. What is that? Oh, he tells you it's this. He says, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness why is this why is Jesus foolishness well well, look at his life first right born in an animal trough a shelter for animals he grew up poor his father died as a young boy he never traveled outside his nation and yet as a young child he's demonstrating wisdom by the age of 12 confounding leaders and teachers of his day they asked where did this young man get his what wisdom right this learning. And as a grown man, then he, he perfectly handled every situation, every conversation without gullibility, without skepticism, without fast anger, but with loving wisdom. He gave. Jesus healed. He spoke against evil, hypocrisy, fought against systems that crushed the poor. And yet, what did he get? Hmm? For living a perfect, loving, and wise life. He got a horrible and bloody crucifixion on a cross. 
And Paul and Christians for centuries have had, again, the gall to say that this was the central moment in human history, the central demonstration of God's wisdom. Paul is saying here that it's not the miracles of Jesus that save you. It's not the teaching of Jesus that saves a person. But the death of Jesus of Nazareth is the only thing that can save a human life. Oh, it sounds like foolishness, doesn't it? But Paul says, that's the wisdom of God. Why does he call it wisdom? Oh, here's why. Because wisdom, again, wisdom's being in touch with reality. And only in the cross do you see the twin truths and doctrines of creation and the fall being recognized. In the cross, you see, there is a moral order that must be honored. And Jesus died honoring that moral law and moral code. And yet, Jesus died as a result of the fall, crucified because of broken, hurting, and wicked people. See, Jesus died to honor the justice of God. And because and through the empathy of God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that we should not perish in our own folly, but that we could have eternal life and know God. And that's wisdom. That's wisdom. See, God knows. God knows. When you try to build your life on anything besides him, listen, you're just looking for a cheap substitute for what God offers you now and for eternity. The wisdom of the world is trusting in your own self, and that's folly. Trusting in your own morals to save you. I hear this all the time. Listen, yeah, you can have your innocence, your own morals without God, but what about, the, what about all the times you've broken your own morals? Hmm? And you've hurt and used people. See, Christianity isn't about God giving us morals. It's about what he does with the fact that we break our own morals. Can't live up to our own morals. See, Jesus' death again shows us his teaching doesn't save us, but his person does. This person does. In other words, your fundamental need, my fundamental need, isn't to be taught. It's to be saved. It's to be saved from ourselves, which is why Paul concludes the chapter with this thunderbolt. He says, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. What is that? Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, oh, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, in the end, in the end, we're all fools. The only question is, what kind of a fool are we going to be? Which kind of foolishness are we going to choose? Fools for ourselves or fools for Christ, whose wisdom can save us? Will we do that this morning? Will we embrace the, God's ultimate wisdom?